You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky, episode 67. Today, we're going to be talking about fire with Spencer Wilson, who is a resource advisor with the Forest Service. Uh, Spencer, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Can you start by just sharing a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in this field? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, So as you said, my name is Spencer Wilson. Uh, I started out my work in the Forest Service as a wildland firefighter. I started out on um, what's called the Type 2 Initial Attack Hand Crew. So it's a module of 20 to I think now the max size is 25, 20 20 to 22 people um, that go out and work on wildland fires. And I did that for several years before transitioning to working on hotshot crew, which is more or less the same thing. It's just at a a slightly elevated level, I guess, of work production and time commitment, um, but still a seasonal employment gig, uh, but still works in the same 20 to 25 person um, crew sizes. And then I went from there and sort of pivoted into the role that I'm in now as a resource advisor. Um, I also work as a fireline EMT when I don't get assigned to a fire as a resource advisor. The resource advising gig was something I switched into because it uses my um, my degree as in environmental science uh, a little bit more specifically. It's also just generally a little less hard on my body. And it was nice to kind of move into a different realm in the fire world, but still you know, remain attached to it. So that was kind of my path to where I am now. And yeah, it remains to be seen what the future holds for me. Very cool. Well, um, I, I definitely want to talk about what you're doing now. But first, I think it's important for us to talk about why fire is important and I guess why we're having this discussion, first of all, people might hear fire and just think that's, you know, no brainer. We don't, we don't like fire. Fire's bad. Fire destroys things. But I think there's more to it than that. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the role that fire plays in nature and, you know, specifically some of the good things it does, um, maybe in addition to some of the, the bad things or the myths that we've heard in the past? Yeah, absolutely. So Fire is a, a very natural part of the ecosystem in large portions of the globe, really, but specifically in North America. It's a, a huge factor of life you know, for all sorts of ecosystems in, in the North American um, landscape. In, you know, there's, we talk about in fire, we talk about fire regimes, so different types of uh, fuel models, which is the term we use for, uh, I guess, ecosystems and the way that they're impacted by fire. Different types of fuel models have different fire regimes. And the fire regime is just sort of referencing the regularity with which you can expect a fire in that landscape. So things like prairies and grasslands and, you know, even the shrub steppe that we have here in the northwest where I'm located, places like that, they they expect to have fires that the, the the plants, you know, the plant life is sort of built around having fires, you know, on a five to 10 year fire regime. So every five to 10 years, you can expect an area to burn. Whereas in, you know, in more heavily forested areas, that fire regime can, you know, be a little bit more consistent in the like 25 to 30 year range. And then there's areas 
of the country, you know, the wetter areas, rainforest, coastal lands, where, you know, a fire 50 to 100 years apart is kind of the, the norm. But all of those different ecosystems still require fire, even though, you know, the regularity with which they need it varies greatly. <clears throat> and fire serves, you know, a lot of different purposes in those eco ecosystems. So in the grasslands, in the areas where fire happens, you know, more consistently, or it's supposed to, as we would say, you know, from a scientific standpoint, those areas, the fire serves to just sort of clear out all of the, you know, dead debris and all of the grass that's been around too long. And it, and it basically serves as sort of a uh, self-fertilizing function. You know, it kills everything off. It doesn't burn at a super high intensity. Typically, grass fires happen very, very quickly and they move through the landscape in a very short period of time, which as a result <clears throat> means that only the stuff on the very surface of the soil is going to die. And it really just turns into more of a carbon deposit that then gets used to regenerate the next you know, life cycle, basically. In a forested area, those same fires that happen, you know, on more of a 20 to 25 year range, they serve kind of a similar purpose, but they are oftentimes a little slower moving. They burn a little bit hotter, but they also take care of a lot more of, you know, like the woody debris that's dead and down and in between the trees. And it's a little bit more of kind of a pruning mechanism. It can also help clear out the underbrush and it can um, reestablish new plant life. And sometimes those fires, you know, they, they burn a little bit deeper down in the soil. So they take out a little bit more of the microbial life, but ultimately that's a good thing because it allows for some of those deeper rooted plant species, those trees, you know, the Douglas fir, the ponderosa pine, it allows for those things to essentially just not have as much competition for a while. And then, you know, the kind of further reaching ramifications of that beyond just the plant life that's being directly impacted by the fires burning, you know, the living organism itself is then the animal life that comes back changes the landscape for them. So when all of the underbrush has been kind of removed, it makes it so that the bigger critters have an easier time moving through it, you know, your deer, your elk, your moose, things like that. And then the stuff that <clears throat> is regenerating on a, you know, on a smaller scale, like the, the small shrub life, right? That provides habitat for all of kind of your little critters. So fire is a very much a feature of the Northwest ecosystems. And I mean, the North American ecosystems at large, the regularity with which it's supposed to occur is definitely a variable that is impacted by human involvement. But it's something that, you know, a lot of, different areas really need to have on a semi-consistent basis the you know the span of that consistency obviously is the biggest variable there the other thing is is there, there are certain types of plant species in you know in north america and in other parts of the globe that require fire for their reproductive processes uh, lodgepole pine is a good example of that it grows very close together and the fires help both uh, spread the seeds. They're the large updrafts that come from fires can basically cast the the uh, the seeding bodies of the lodgepole pine into the air and help them spread over great distances. Uh, but also, they have pine cones that have a uh, you know a hard waxy substance on them that doesn't open until a fire of significant intensity comes through and actually melts that off of them and lets them allows them to open and drop their seeds. 
And there's a couple other plants I honestly can't recall them off the top of my head, but they have a similar function where uh, until there's a fire of you know substantial heat, they don't actually reproduce. So you know there's a number of different ways that fire is a positive feature in the landscape. So even though it causes a lot of destruction up front, it makes room for more growth in the long run and, and kind of, I guess, the cycle of life literally, you know, isn't possible without um, some of that destruction is, is what it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, you know, um, destruction is sort of a tricky term to use there, too, because in, in a lot of those natural fire regimes, you know, the the destruction, destruction, if you will, is, is very short lived because the fires are not burning in theory, you know, under their ideal circumstances, they're not burning with this cataclysmic intensity. They're not killing off trees. They're not destroying the entire forest. You don't see, you know, in natural areas that have a more natural fire regime still in place, you don't rare, you don't really see these like what we call nuked out areas. You know, it looks like a, the after effects of an atomic bomb where everything is just ash and dead and burned, you know, to absolutely nothing, which I think is kind of the, the classic media representation of the after effects of a wildfire. But part of that is because that's becoming more and more commonplace these days. Um, whereas in a, you know, in a natural fire regime that is, you know, where fire is doing the things that it's supposed to in the landscape it's supposed to be in, at the intervals that it's supposed to be there and the the really even even the short-term effects really don't look that bad you know we get a lot of what we call understory burns so in a forested area you know the the needle cast the pine needle build up on the ground gets burned a lot of the dead woody debris gets burned but within you know the span of maybe two to three months there's already stuff growing back on the ground even you know and the trees aren't getting torched out. So they all look healthy. They don't even, they don't look any different, you know, after one of those fires rolls through. So the you know, like ideal intensity is a really big factor. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Um, I mean, you, like you said, under normal circumstances, if fire was allowed to kind of live out its normal life cycle without human in interference, it would probably be a lot less severe in a lot of cases, but because humans have, in their infinite wisdom intervened and tried to control everything. Um, I think we're kind of seeing some of the worst, you know, case scenarios, like you're saying, um, it, despite knowing, you know, that there are a lot of benefits to fires. So why has the historic uh, attitude in the U.S. and probably other countries around the world been towards fire suppression over the years rather than letting these natural processes play out? Is it a lack of knowledge? Is it fear? Maybe it's a little bit of both or something else. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, there's, a, I mean, there's a lot of factors, right. That have all kind of compounded. Um, so for one in the United States, which is you know most of where my awareness is based off of just because that's where grew up and went to school and also fought fire. Um, or I guess I should say North America because I had done some time in Canada. But in North America, but specifically the US, the, the policy towards wildfire for right about 100 years was just full suppression. So anytime there was a fire, we went and tried to put it out. Um, that sort of started 
kind of in, I think, I think it was 1910 was when there's this fire that's referenced. It's called the big burn. There's a book about it. Um, I believe that's where one of our tools, the Pulaski, it came from a guy, Ed Pulaski, who was involved in that fire. That one I'd have to be fact checked on to be totally honest. But anyway, the big burn was this, this major catastrophic fire that happened in 1910. And there was a whole lot of very destructive fire that happened and it also it burned an entire town i cannot remember the name of it um and very many people died as a result of that and so it was this huge destructive fire and that sort of kicked off the movement um and the attitude towards wildland fire that was just that all fire is uncontrollable and therefore bad needs to be stopped and so for about a hundred years, um, the policy was just anytime that there's a fire, a wildland fire, uh, we have to go and put it out immediately. And so that had some pretty far-reaching ramifications, right? Because now all of this, all this dead and down fuel that I was talking about, the needle cast, the branches on the ground, the logs that have fallen from trees, all of that stuff that would normally get cleared out, you know, on this anywhere from 10 to 30 year interval, is now not getting cleared out. So you're, you're missing at least, at a, at a bare minimum, you're missing almost four cycles of that, but you know, at a maximum, almost 10 cycles of that clearing process. And that has just caused an enormous amount of what we call fuel loading, right? Which is just the available burnable material on the ground. So that's kind of problem number one, right? That's the first thing, the easiest one to point to as far as human impacts on the fire regime. Um, the second biggest impact is that more and more people are wanting to have a cabin in the woods, you know, and there's just more people in general. So as people start moving out of the cities and into these more rural areas, we call it the wildland urban interface. So it's where people are living in places where fires want to be. They you know, we have more values at risk. We have more people's houses and homes and pets and barns and, you know, various things at risk in those areas. And then we have more opportunities for fires to happen. Power lines that can fall. People who are just messing around in the woods. Somebody with a motorbike without a spark arrestor. I mean, any of those things, right? Those are all just chances for fires. Gender to reveal stop. parties. Yeah, gender <laughs> reveal parties. Right, where you need uh, 6,000 pounds of TNT and some colored smoke to let everybody know that you're having a bouncing baby boy, right? Like, all of those things are opportunities for wildland fires to happen as you get out of hand. And then, you know, the third one I think that is gaining more and more traction in public awareness is just climate change, right, is a huge factor. Uh, summers are getting longer. They're getting hotter. The entire globe is getting warmer. Um, also, what is happening there is, you know, your, your wet and rainy and cold seasons are shorter. The wintertime is, you know, it's abbreviated. And what we're seeing a lot more of is, you know, we're still having kind of, we have a lot of in, intense storms that happen, it seems like now, but they, they're shorter lived. And the problem with that is in, in fire, we have kind of 10 uh, sorry, four uh, fuel types that we reference really consistently. And it's based off of how long it takes for those fuels to 
sort of equalize with the ambient moisture content of the air. So we call them one hour fuels, 10 hour fuels, 100 hour fuels, and 1000 hour fuels. In each of those fuels, it's, it's so a one hour fuel, if the relative humidity of the surrounding air is 45%, a one hour fuel after one hour at that percentage will have a 45% moisture content, right? And one hour fuels, you know, is, is things like dried grass, pine needles, um, small, very fine fuel models. 10 hour fuels, right? Takes 10 hours to adjust. And those are things like your, your sticks that are about the size of like your finger, you know, or maybe a pencil, something about that size. And this is all for dead fuels. Uh, live fuel moisture is a little bit different in how it reacts. And then 100 hour fuels is something like maybe around the size of your wrist. Uh, or a little bit bigger than that. And then a uh, thousand hour fuel, you know, is about anything like the size of your, maybe your leg or your waist, depending on how large of a human you are. And so the issue is, is with these uh, inconsistent storms, these shorter storm cycles and these abbreviated winters, you know, a thousand hours, what is that? That's 40 something days, right? So you need 40 something days at, a, at an elevated uh, moisture content or elevated humidity level to get your thousand hour fuels to get to their wintertime moisture levels. And then on the back end, it typically takes a thousand hours for those to dry out. The problem is, is when you are not having, when you don't have enough time for those thousand hour fuels to reach their typical wetness over the span of a winter, now, even if you have a year where you're not in a drought, your your largest fuels, the biggest energy component, uh, releasing culprits in a forest fire, they never reached that same level of, of wet that they normally would. So, which is all, I mean, it, it's some, kind of a, a lengthy explanation for why, for one of the bigger problems we have, but those big fuels that are responsible for a lot of the the high heat, which translates into more destructive fires, they're just they're even on a even on a wetter year, they're not getting as wet as they normally would, which is a big reason why we're having this compounding fire season effect, where it just seems like every year they keep getting worse and worse and worse. And it's sort of because they are, because these fuels are just you know kind of getting drier and drier over time. Because now that we have a longer drying season and a shorter wetting season, they they get a chance to get even you know less and less damp each year. And so that's another kind of oddball one that I don't think most people are aware of, but it is definitely a pretty significant factor. And as far as a fire, fire modeling standpoint is concerned, that's, that's a huge issue. So we've got more fuel because of years of fire suppression, and then we've got hotter conditions because of climate change and fluctuating seasons and the inability, like you said, of these things to actually get dry enough that they won't burn and, you know, compounded with all these other factors that happen in nature. And we're just basically set up for months long wildfires. And it's, it's just baffling to me when I hear about these fires, sometimes I'm like, how much more could there be to burn? Like literally we're going to run out of trees, right? Eventually there's not going to be any forests. And it's terrifying because some we're talking about some of the oldest growth 
in the country, maybe the world in some of these instances. And it's, it's so sad that we're losing these, you know, not just losing life, but we're losing um, this historic part of our, our, our world and part of the ecosystem. And, and they play such a vital role that I, I don't even know where to start with all that, but I'm sure you've seen yeah. it firsthand and it impacts you even more. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, it is, uh, it's devastating, you know, when you go through those areas that do have those massive fires, it's, it's an interesting feeling because, you know, it's just, it does, it feels so sad. You go through these completely nuked out areas and it is kind of that feeling. It's like, how much more can there be left to burn, you know, because you'll have these fires that are 50, a hundred thousand acres. And, you know, and it's not a hundred thousand acres of just understory growth. I mean, understory burn, you know, where it's clearing out all the brush and stuff. It'll be, you know, a hundred thousand acres where it's killing 90% of the trees in that region, you know, and like you drive through it. It's like, man, how could this ever get fixed? This just seems impossible. And, you know, and sometimes it kind of feels overwhelming when you go through that stuff. Seeing the fires in action is, you know, for lack of a better word, awesome, <laughs> you know, in like a, in the true meaning of that word, I guess it's awe inspiring and it's very humbling. Um, but then, yeah, as soon as the fire is passing through, it changes from this, you know, awe inspiring thing to just sort of this general feeling of, you know, devastation because it is, I and mean, it's just so much death honestly seeing all of those trees and all those plants that are just kind of reduced to ash and um yeah you just it makes you wonder at times it's like oh is it ever going to stop i don't know like do we run out of trees one day maybe i don't know yeah not to mention all the animals that and humans but you know to the to a larger extent that uh depend on these forests as their home and and everything but um Anyways, let's move on to maybe slightly <laughs> less depressing things. Yeah, um, so obviously the attitude in the U.S. has historically been one of suppression, you know, all fires bad. Um, has there been a shift in recent years, especially seeing maybe the error in our ways and, and the impact of this policy? And, and are we kind of veering to the other way or what do you think is is kind of the next steps for yeah yeah absolutely i mean um in, in several different ways so from just a forest management standpoint there has been a big push in the last several decades i don't actually know when the official implementation of it began but um you know prescribed fire is now a very large part of forest management and prescribed fire is exactly what it sounds like, like taking fire and reintroducing it into an area where it hasn't been for quite some time in a lot of cases. And, you know, the Forest Service tries to do that in a very careful way. You know, we'll, pre we'll prepare entire areas, you know, they'll pick units out, they design a burn plan and the local resources go through and we actually build our fire lines in advance. We sort of do all the firefighting before the fire is there and then it allows us to hopefully light the fires you know in a more optimal weather window is kind of usually what we're basing that around so when it's not as hot not as dry 
um, and when we can plan around wind events, you know, we try and make it so when it's not windy is typically the practice. Um, you know, and then we'll set these fires and let the fire kind of clear out certain areas. And they usually have a prescribed tree mortality rate that they're looking for. And they have a level of consumption that they're after. And, you know, all of that is sort of the, and all of that is just to try and mimic what fire would naturally be doing in that landscape. And that's been a big push in recent years. The, another thing that the Forest Service and other firefighting um, entities try and do a little bit more of is when it can be allowed for doing more fire management rather than fire suppression. So what that means is when you have a fire that's in an area that needs to burn and it's not moving in a particularly destructive fashion, sometimes, you know, we'll let it grow bigger to try and cover more ground in a less destructive fashion. So that way we can allow fire to sort of be reintroduced naturally into the landscape. Typically they try and do that more with natural caused fires. So it's more likely that you'll have a fire management uh, procedure or attitude on a fire that's caused by something like lightning than you would have if it was a downed power line or you know, a, a chain dragging behind a trailer or something like that. Usually it's, it's a more natural caused fire that they'll try and allow to just sort of do its thing. And we'll do what's called point protection when we're doing that, um, which is also a method of firefighting that we'll use when a fire is completely out of control. And point protection is just finding those values at risk that are in the path of the fire and making sure they don't get destroyed, but then allowing the fire to just burn on its own because we either aren't or can't stop it, as the case may be. Another thing that the Forest Service is pretty keen on is anytime there's fires in wilderness areas, uh, which are just historically less developed, less logged, and less impacted by human, you know, movements. Uh, for fires that are in wilderness areas are oftentimes just allowed to burn and burn out because they, they usually will. You know, most fires that happen in those areas just kind of burn themselves out because they'll run into areas where other fires had come through or you know, just places where there isn't enough fuel to support them, or it'll just, you know, the weather will change enough that the fire will just kind of go out on its own. So we do a lot of management of those fires rather than just immediate suppression, which sometimes, you know, to people who aren't as informed on that side of things, that can seem very counterintuitive you know it's like well, why aren't you guys out there putting it out right now and it's like well because the fire is doing what we want it to and it needs to be here because if we don't let this one burn the way that it's burning right now then the next one you know might destroy everything and we would rather you know rather have to repaint the house than tear it down and build it again you know so yeah plus you're you're having to probably think about like the dangers of sending a crew in to these situations where it's not, you know, I guess you're picking the battle, your battles, right? Like, do I want to mm -hmm. spend the time and manpower and risk their lives on this fire when? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that they do is when they have those prepped burn units and they haven't had a chance to light a fire in those areas, oftentimes if there's a wildland fire nearby, they'll just let it burn into it. It's like, ah, great. You know, we just got mm -hmm. a free day of burning done by a fire that was already in the area. There's some budgetary stuff, you know, that comes into all of that as, as well, as you can imagine there's in 
incredible amount of red tape around putting fire on the ground <laughs> when there isn't already fire present. The issue with all of that stuff, though, is that with you know these extended burn seasons, with these hot months that are going longer and longer on both ends, and these wet seasons that are ending so abruptly, and with our fuel moistures not reaching the levels that they typically would, the windows where you can put down prescribed fire are just getting smaller every year. There are years where you can't do it. There's just no point where it's safe to start a fire until the snow flies. And then once that happens, you can't start a fire because there's snow everywhere. And so that's turning into its own issue, right? It's like, we're trying to, we're trying to re-implement all of this prescribed fire as fast and as much as we can. But for one, you're fighting almost a hundred years of the exact opposite of that. And then for another thing is now that we're trying to correct it, we don't have as much time in the year where we can't. So, you know, those are just their own issues and they keep, it's a positive feedback loop, you know, that we're trying to put an end to. And that's pretty tough. The other thing that we do in the forest service, a lot of is we do pile burning. So you'll just go out with your crew. And this is what a lot of hand crews and engine crews do before the main fire season starts is they go out and they cut down trees under a certain diameter and they limb all the ones that are larger than that and they build piles out of everything they cut and they wait for a couple of years and they go back through in the winter time and they burn that and that's very effective it has very minimal impacts on the forest health um, in terms of negative impacts obviously there's a lot of positive things that can come from it but those piles are great because they have lower carbon release components, which is a pretty useful thing. So it's less smoke overall, and it's just less greenhouse gases being emitted, you know, by your fire suppression practices. The, it's also very effective for the longevity of forest areas. It helps the trees you know, become healthier, and it also kills less of the soil. So with broadcast burns, you can sometimes build more intensity than you want. And it can take that microbial life in the top couple inches of topsoil, you know, generations, honestly, to totally recover. With uh, pile burning, you will 100% kill the soil right underneath the pile. But, you know, if you have a 10 foot by 10 foot circle on the ground that's burned up, that's a lot better than, you know, 40 acres. So, yeah, those are kind of the main things that they're trying to do um, in terms of returning fire to the landscape, but you know, they're tough. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. And, and especially with the, the challenges of the seasons shifting and the temperatures changing, it, it makes it even worse. Um, I know you said you're mostly focused on North America, but I'm, one, I'm curious, do you know of any other cultures, um, specifically, I'm thinking indigenous cultures that have a historic um, relationship with fire and an understanding of how, you know, it, it's needed in the landscapes and maybe how they've managed um, those landscapes differently over time and, and the results that they've had compared to, you know, what we've done the last hundred or so years. Well, I mean, even in North America, there's quite an indigenous history around wildfire, you know, um, that that's kind of one of the big, talking points now honestly is with this reintroduction of fire into the landscape there's been a lot of sort of oh no kidding from 
people who are learning about how, you know, all of these forests when, you know, white explorers, I use that term loosely because they weren't finding anything new. They were just finding things that other people already lived on. But those people found all of these beautiful, gorgeous forests that looked so pristine and amazing. And they're like, wow, it's, it's wonderful what nature will do. And it's like, no, no, this was all very carefully taken care of for hundreds of years by the indigenous people that lived on this ground. And that was a huge thing. You know, there there's lots of history in several different regions in the U.S. of Native cultures using fire to their benefit and to the forest benefit, you know. So in the Pacific Northwest, it was used a lot to just beat back underbrush, basically, and make areas easier for travel and to and easier for hunting, and also to reduce the intensity of fires that would come through uncontrolled. In the plains, it was used to, you know, to hunt, actually. They would, they would do that sometimes to you know, move herds of buffalo around. They would also use it to clear out, you know, and like refertilize ground for crops, basically. It's like all of that stuff was, you know, prescribed fire, for lack of a better term. As far as in other countries, indigenous cultures using it right now, I'm honestly not aware of too many. I know that it's used in a lot of places for clearing ground for farmland, but that's sort of a little bit more of an industrial use rather than, you know, preservation of a natural ecosystem. Yeah, I, I think it's just important to note that, like you said, this has been done for years, generations, hundreds of years. And uh, now it's scientists kind of, quote unquote, rediscovering these methods that have kind of been known this whole time. So it's it's nice that they're finally, I guess, listening. But also we could have avoided a lot of damage over the years if we would just, I mean, listen to the people who were taking care of the land in the first place. So, right, um, right. It's just another one of those cases, too. I mean, it was outlawed. You know, they made it illegal and punishable, you know, by various means if you were lighting prescribed fires, simply because that was what, you know, native people were doing. And they just wanted to stop it, basically. And so, like, yeah. you know, that's a pretty interesting part of the history of the West, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, we could do a whole show on that, I'm sure. Um <laughs> We've talked a little bit about how climate change has impacted the amount and severity of wildfires. So I'm just wondering in your time working in the field, um, you know, just the short amount of time that you've been doing this work, what are some changes that you've noticed in that time period since it has gotten so much worse, so much quicker? Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question. Um, so I started, my first season was in 2013. Um, and yeah, even since then. So when I, when I started, I remember seeing, in, we have a, we call it the saw shack. It's just where all the chainsaws are hung up and where you do all of your maintenance and such. And they had a, like a poster, I guess, for lack of a better word on the wall, maybe you call it a chart. And it was just a catalog of all of the years that that crew had been in operation and it listed the days on fire each season and I think the number of fires they went to in that season. And this thing went back to, I think the earliest year on there was 1975 or 1970 or something like that in that location. 
But I remember looking through it, and up until the mid '90s, a big season was anything that totaled over, you know, maybe 70 days on fire. Like there was hardly anything that crossed over the 60 threshold until about 95, maybe like four or five seasons. Nowadays, if you have under 100 days on fire in a fire season, you would consider yourself to have not had a very good season, you know, because you wouldn't have made that much money because it'd be a low year. Um, nowadays, 100 years, I mean, 100 days on fire is sort of expected, right? You know, you have a 180 day season, give or take. And if you're not spending at least 100 of those days actively engaged on a fire, um, you would consider yourself to have a pretty quiet season. When I started my first season, I think I got everybody, everybody in the fire world, as far as the, the federal people are considered, they, you sort of size up your fire season based off of the number of hours of overtime you work. So the reason for that is because the majority of your money comes from your overtime hours. Everybody who's a temporary employee in the Forest Service works what's called a 1039. Um, they work 1,039 base pay hours. And the reason for that is because you're federally mandated to be covered um, with your various benefits if you're over 1,040 hours. So they hire you on for one shy of that so they don't have to do any of that nonsense. And then um, send you out there at, I think, the going rate for a starting firefighter now is right around the $13.80 an hour mark, something like that. Um, so you make most of your money on overtime. So everybody always asks how many hours you got, and they're talking about your overtime hours for a season. So my first season, I think I made 450 um, or 500 hours, which on, uh, on the type of crew I was on, that was a low season. Um, but now that would be a very, very low season by the standards then it was like fair to midland you know nobody was like wow what a terrible year but no one was writing home about it either if you're on a hotshot crew now and you don't hit a thousand hours in a fire season um you, you basically don't feel like you had a full season you feel like you're kind of shorted as far as your pay is concerned so yeah even in that span of time you know going going to a point where a thousand hours is the benchmark because even at that point in time you know there were crews that would hit a thousand hours but that was kind of considered like if you were on a thousand hour crew you were on a busy crew that was going to be a lot of work that year and a lot of crews that started in the northwest which has a later fire season um, a lot of crews that started up in like the montana area it was pretty common that you wouldn't really hit that thousand hour mark you know hitting like 800, 900 for a hotshot crew, that was normal, you know? But now, you know, if you don't get a thousand hours, you're like, wow, what a quiet year for us. It's just kind of the standard. And I mean, that's kind of crazy. You know, a thousand hours of overtime in six months of work. I mean, what that amounts to is, you know, you're doing, so if you were working 40 hours a week for a full year with, with two weeks of vacation, that's 2000 hours. So at a thousand hours of overtime, you're working a full year's hours of work in six months. Jeez. Um, my busiest yeah. season, I think I had almost 14. I was like 1330 or something like that. That's, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of hours. That's a lot yeah. of work. <laughs> yeah. And you would think that, um, not to get too political, but the, the people who are so concerned about government spending would be 
looking at something like this and seeing it as an easy way to reduce it. If if we can get less fires, less need for firefighters, we would save money. But um, I guess the correlation between that and climate change and everything doesn't quite make it <laughs> that far. Um, yeah. We're looking at just a money standpoint, not to mention, you know, the safety and health of people involved. But um, yeah, absolutely. Well, and the other thing is, is um, if they did a better job, you know, the far-reaching economic impacts of fire are far greater than just the wages you're paying the people to fight it, right? Like, it's it's a massive sink, you know, across the country in, in virtually every sector, right? Like, the impacts, I mean, fire is na a natural disaster. It's happening every year, and it's getting worse every single year, and it's predictable, unlike an earthquake, <laughs> you know? Okay. You know they're going to happen, and you know it's a problem, and Spending more money on it up front would honestly save, you know, probably an untold percentage down the road. But it's a little, it's tricky to kind of get people to buy in on that. And yeah, the issue, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say we're, we're better at um, fixing problems after they happen than spending money up front to save money, you know, down the road for some reason. Right. And I mean, it's getting, it's starting to get more and more press now because it's starting to affect more and more people people than just the folks who are going out there to deal with it right and um which is i mean it's ultimately a really good thing but yeah it's just sort of mind-blowing that you can be out there you know, risking your life really and working those kinds of hours for that length of time year in and year out and you know your base pay wage is still under 15 bucks an hour like, yeah that that blew my mind when you said that number i was like not even 14 dollars an hour to literally put your life on the line. And I've actually heard that there are some parts of the country where they use prison labor to do that work and pay them, you know, minuscule amounts of money to do this, these jobs. And I just can't, <laughs> I can't believe oh, yeah. that. Yeah. So I can look at it. I'm looking at it right now, actually. Um, it looks like, okay, wait, that's 2022. One moment. I'm going to look up this year's so a GS4 is kind of your basic level firefighter. If you're a GS4, that's sort of your entry level for most gigs. Um, and it got, there was a bill introduced two years ago, I think was when that one came out, um, that raised the pay rate for um, all fire employees basically. And so it looks like now um, they're making a whopping fourteen fifty one an hour as a GS four. My last year in the in the Forest Service, um, or my last year as a firefighter in the Forest Service, I got I get paid under a different pay scale now for what I'm doing. Um, but I was my base wage was I think thirteen thirty one an hour. My last year on a hot shocker. God, that is, that's just embarrassing for, you know, the, the money shows what we value some of these, these jobs at, and as a country, we need to do better, but. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, it's crazy. I mean, that, that's nothing, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's, let's talk about your, your new job or your current job, I should say. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I know you said you're a resource advisor and, and that kind of entails that you work to minimize the impacts of firefighting on the landscape and natural resources. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, so I like to tell people I'm a government-sponsored Lorax. I, um, I speak for the trees because the trees don't have voices, you know? So a lot of what I do is when I'm on a fire, if you were to ask a 
a firefighter, you know, on, on the ground, what I do, they would say I irritate them. <laughs> and that's the majority of my job. So what I do is I go out and it varies from fire to fire, um, just, you know, based off of the requirements of the fire suppression and the different values at risk and whose ground the fire itself is on, whether it's private or, you know, forest service or BLM or national park or what have you. But I will be assigned to a fire and the group that I work under is usually run by um, a biologist who's considered the lead weed, the lead resource advisor. And they'll have, you know, a certain number of values within the fire perimeter or nearby that they want protected or not impacted. So maybe it's endangered fish in a stream. Maybe it's uh, a burial site of some sort. Maybe it's some other archaeological um, artifact or region. Maybe it's uh, an endangered tree species or endangered cactus or something that's very uncommon and endemic to an area. And what they'll have me do is I go out on the fire line and with the resources that are working there, uh, I interface with them. And basically it's my job to go, you know, hey, maybe we don't pour all of our unused fuel into this stream if we can help it, you know, or maybe when we're trying to put retardant down, if there's a ridge line, you know, 40, you know, 40 yards over, maybe we put it on that instead of dumping it directly into the creek bottom. Um, maybe if we're digging, you know, when we're digging fire line in an area before we do a prescribed fire, can we dig some, you know, some of the needle cast away from these trees that are endangered that we only have 14 of on this entire forest or something like that, right? So um, it honestly amounts to typically making more work for people, which makes me not particularly popular with the people doing that work. I'm what's uh, referred to as an NPR, a non-producing resource. And the more NPRs you have in your area, the more work you're going to have to do because they all really like to point their fingers and have crews go and do things. Um, and so having been on both ends of that, you know, dynamic, I can definitely understand uh, people's uh, dissatisfaction <laughs> with having me present. But ultimately, you know, it's really important work because it is those things that, you know, you don't really get a second chance at if they get destroyed. And that's kind of the whole point of the gig. And in other on other fires, you know, it can be just making sure that when we're logging areas that have been burned, you know, just to try to get some value out of the trees. I make sure that, you know, ownership lines don't get crossed or if something gets harvested from an area it's not supposed to, that, you know, the proper person, you know, gets those resources, right? You know, if we cut trees that are on somebody's property, we leave them in a place where they can access them instead of just taking them and loading them into our fire sale, you know, things like that um, I'm also responsible for. When a fire is in progress, another thing that I do is just a lot of data logging. I'll go around and just sort of catalog everything that has been done as a fire suppression tactic, you know, contingency lines that were made, dozer lines that were pushed, things that got, you know, implemented but then not used or implemented and then got burned over, 
what have you. I'll do a lot of cataloging and take photographs. Sometimes I'm even, you know, partially involved in writing up our suppression restoration program. And that just means all the stuff that we're going to do once the fire is out to try and fix it all, right? Because when you push 40 feet wide of dozer line through a bunch of forest, you don't want to just leave a highway, right? You want to go back and try and replant some, you know, some undergrowth, some brush, move things across it so people don't use it as a new full buying track, all that kind of stuff. So it's a pretty varied job, but most of it boils down to just trying to make things as as much as they want to be, you know, try and restore the ecosystem to the way that it's supposed to be before we got there when possible. Well, I'm glad to know that there is a focus on um, prevention and restoration because I guess, you know, like, like many Americans, I probably just thought, oh, well, you know, you go in, you put the fire out and you leave and, and there's not much thought given to what gets damaged. But, but I guess there is a science to, you know, what, you can avoid doing or how you can minimize where the fire goes or what gets affected, et cetera. So um, I, I'm glad to hear that, that we have programs like that and people like you out there, you know, tapping people on the shoulder saying, Hey, uh, could you, could you maybe give yourself more work and do it this way to save, you know, the species of fish or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. And it is. I mean, yeah, it's a fine line to walk because of that. Right. Like you can imagine the person who's been, <laughs> working for 13 days straight trying to do you know this backbreaking labor for you know very few dollars per hour and then they have some person who wanders up that they assume has never fought fire in their life trying to tell them how to do their job and it uh yeah it can be a little bit of a dicey conversation at times <laughs> if you don't approach it yeah well i guess it's a good thing you do have a background in that and can kind of speak the language and understand where they're coming from. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, and I try to draw kind of a balance from that because like I said, I've been on both ends of the, the exchange and I know how frustrating it can be when it seems like the person, like somebody rolls in, has absolutely no idea what you've been up to, hasn't been around and suddenly wants to tell you how to do everything differently. It's like, dude, I'm on, you know, hour 900 right now. I haven't seen my family in five months. I've missed three weddings this summer. And I am just exhausted. Like, you look like you just came out of the office today to, like, <laughs> in the fire. Like, I don't want to hear it. You know, and so I think just being cognizant of that is, is really important. Yeah, I imagine that's a fine line to walk. Um, well, I guess, it, you know, wouldn't be a discussion about fire if we didn't talk about fire safety. And with all of the increased risk factors we've talked about throughout the show, um, what are some things that you can tell people, especially if they're out in the woods or in nature, maybe camping, but, you know, even just general fire safety tips um, to maybe help prevent some of those, those big lasting fires and, and some of the silly reasons that they start. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of, you know, on a personal level, if, if you don't, if you're visiting the forests, right. And going camping and all that stuff, uh, our standard for if a fire is all the way out is if you can drag your hand through every square inch of it and not get burned, right? And so I would say try and hold yourself to that standard. If you have a campfire and you are leaving the area, you should be comfortable having your hand in every single area where that fire was burning before you leave. Otherwise, 
there's something in there that could ignite another fire, right? I've been on, I can't tell you how many fires that were escaped in unattended campfires, right? Like it happens all the time and it's such an easy thing to, to mitigate. The other thing I would say is if you do live in that wildland urban interface, if you have a home that's surrounded by trees outside of the city limit, um, the best thing that you can do for yourself, but also for the firefighters, is have a defensible space. Make your house a place that, you know, is possible to keep the fire out of it. Because to be totally honest, we do what's called structure triage when we go through an area when there's a fire coming through. And if we come up on a place that has trees, you know, growing right up against the house, limbs hanging over it, there's a bunch of, you know, debris in the gutters, there's wood piles stacked against the home. We won't even, a lot of times we won't even bother because we don't have the time, you know, and like your house, I'm sorry, nothing you own is worth my life. And if it's going to put me in harm's way to be around that and try to save you know, to spend 12 hours trying to make your house able to be saved. Like, I'm not going to bother. Your house is going to, what's going to happen is going to happen. And I'm not going to impact that. So, you know, both for the safety of the firefighters and also for, you know, being able to come back and have your home still standing. I think the best thing you can do is to put in that work ahead of time. You know, make sure you have a wide buffer between burnable material and your home. It, I suppose doesn't make for the most beautiful cabin in the woods look when you have, you know, 30 or 40 feet of clear space between your home and the next tree or the next shrub. But I mean, it sure beats coming back to an ash pit, you know? And so doing that sort of preventive maintenance, making sure your wood piles aren't stacked against the home, you know, things like that. Um, it'll ensure that, you know, firefighters, if they can, will actually, try and save your property, um, but it'll also keep them from being in harm's way, you know, in the process, which I've known a couple of firefighters who have died doing that, you know, trying to save property. Because typically that's what it is, right? Is I mean, I, I guess maybe I wouldn't say typically, but it's not uncommon for firefighters to end up in bad positions because they're trying to save something that's really important either to them or just somebody else. Um, you know, and not a lot of fires are laying their lives down for trees, but, you know, it's a little bit different if it's somebody, you know's home or something of that nature, you know. Yeah, you're, I, I didn't live in a cabin in the woods, but you're, you're making me think back to my house and how I probably had some things going on that, you know, even in the city would, would not be considered very fire safe as far as things up against the house and trees growing yeah. too close, et cetera. So, yeah, to totally. think about. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, ultimately, like in most cities, you're probably fine because there's a lot of pavement, you know, in between you and any sort of fire that would be coming through. But on the other hand, you know, I've seen it. I've seen towns burn down. And yeah, it's crazy. And fire, when it has the right conditions, is just an absolutely unbelievable force. Yeah. Um, I, I know we're kind of running short on time, but since we do have some listeners, I'm sure that love nature and camping, do you have any tips specifically for folks who might want to, you know, go off and camp and maybe start fires or cook over a fire or something, um, to do's or not to do's? Yeah, I would just say, make sure that you're, you know, really being careful and checking with the local guidelines, you know, because that's ultimately going to be your best indicator of what is and isn't safe to do. 
just because fire is such a regional thing, you know, different areas have different rules around it. And those are for very particular reasons, you know? And so I think being, being really well informed on that sort of thing is probably the best thing that you can do. And then, you know, like I said, just making sure that if you're going to say that your fire is out, you need to be able to put, you know, your hand in every single area of that, you know, burnable material. So those are probably the two biggest things and yeah, respect those guidelines, you know, it, uh, it's sort of astounding to some of us, I think at times when you see people in areas that are known to have very consistent fire regimes and are in, you know, droughts and they're lighting off fireworks in the woods, for instance, or, you know, target shooting against areas that have rocks where they can have sparks, you know, all of that stuff. It's all those little things, but man, sometimes it's like, we went to this fire. What are we? It's like, oh, do we know what the cause was? Oh, yeah, someone was shooting out fireworks Fourth of July in the middle of the woods. It's like, dude, <laughs> come on, like this or, is part of the, what are you doing? Flicking cigarettes out the the door of their car when it's you know been a drop for a hundred days or something ridiculous. Like, yeah, totally. Things totally. people probably just think, oh, it's a tiny flame, but uh, it, it can spread really fast. So, um, yeah, down in the southwest, I was on a hotshot crew down there and. Um, the first fire I ever went to was from a, a chain, we call them chain drag fires. And it's literally mm -hmm. just the chains that hook your trailer to your car, you know, like safety chains you put on there. They, okay. if they drag on the ground, they can cause sparks that will start fires. And it happens all the time. It's one of yeah. the more common causes of fires down there. Like, that's yeah. such a little thing and so easily mitigated, but people don't. Yeah. Well, if, if nothing else listeners i hope um you all th this conversation makes you all think more about i guess those actions and how little um quick things can cause a, a big fire and um like i i know i lived in texas and whenever i'd camp in the summer or even spring sometimes you'd have to check is there a burn van because if there is you know you can't cook over a campfire and <laughs> um you like you said you just got to be prepared for those local rules and everything so yeah absolutely and just make sure you have water on hand if you are going to do Mm -hmm. really oh yeah really <laughs> yeah number one um well spencer uh do you have anything else that we haven't covered that you think is important to talk about before we move on i would just say if you find any opportunities to offer you know voting support or if you see anybody lobbying for signatures or trying to um increase awareness around firefighting and the risks and impacts that it brings upon firefighters themselves um, support it. You know, it's a thing that's really needed and they are having such a hard time right now keeping people in the firefighting business because the wages aren't there. The lifestyle is, I mean, honestly miserable. Um, people just don't want to do it. It used to be worth it because you know, 20 years ago, if you're making 15 bucks an hour with a thousand hours of overtime, that was pretty good living, but like, it just doesn't cut it anymore. And, you know, you put that on top of being away from your family for six months out of the year, being in danger, sleeping on the ground, you know, breathing smoke every single day, day in and day out, carrying, you know, 30 to 60 pounds on your back every day. Like it just, it doesn't make sense anymore. Nobody wants to do that. And, um, it needs to, that needs to change because if it, the fires are still going to be here, whether or not the people are out there to deal with them. And so, yeah, if you get any opportunity to vote in support of that, support it, you know, with 
any sort of person who's looking for signatures, you know, any of that kind of thing, I would say just please do or please consider it because, I mean, last season alone, um, I was talking to somebody who was a hiring authority and they were telling me it was like 75 or 80% of hotshot crews couldn't fill their rosters. That used to be a job that was in such high demand that you couldn't expect to get it in your first season, you know? So it's just Mm -hmm. like, it's very quickly turned into a pretty big problem. And not just because of the fires, right? We're running, like, people aren't wanting to fight them. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, firefighting, I think, is something that crosses political lines, you know, any any kind of disagreements. I mean, I think everybody can agree that fighting fires is important, and we need to put resources to that and value the people who are doing that hard and dangerous work. So definitely agree. (laughs) Yeah. well, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, do you have any additional resources for folks who want to learn even more about this and kind of delve deeper into the world of wildfires? Um, I'd say, well, so most most forests have, you know, have pages that offer information about, you know, things like burn plans and burn guidelines. They'll let you know when prescribed fire is happening. Um, they also have any of their, you know, hiring announcements and stuff. If that's an aspect of it that you're really interested into, um, I honestly, to be totally candid, I haven't encountered all, all that many media sources that I feel do a particularly good job of covering what firefighting is really like, um, because it's yeah, it's just a it's a grungy world. It's very it's very rough. It's very uncouth. It's not a pretty scene. Um, but that's kind of the appeal of it, I think to me. And, uh, that's a hard thing to dress up in a particularly palatable way for the general public. And as of yet, I don't think I've really found anything where I was like, okay, yeah, this one, this actually nails it. I I think they do a really good job of representing what fire is like. Um, but I think in terms of just, you know, basic information and such. I think, you know, looking at your local forests, uh, your local forest webpage and whatever your ranger district you're closest to, especially if there's a lot of smoke in the air or something, you know, you can you can usually find the information on that. And most large fires have social media pages nowadays. So if you learn the name of a fire, you can actually go on Facebook and you can typically find some information about that fire, which is kind of handy. Okay. Well, that's... Great information. Um, I guess we'll go ahead and move on to our green life hack portion of the show where we just share with listeners one thing they can do to live more sustainably and maybe reduce their own uh, carbon footprint. So Spencer, would you like to start us out? Ooh, I'm going to have to think about that. Well, I don't, do you want something that specifically pertains to what we're talking about or just in general? Uh, totally up to you. It could be something you've implemented in your own life or that you want to start doing yourself that you think is a good just suggestion for others that might be easy to implement. Um, something that I do a lot more of lately is I just walk more. Um, I'm sort of an active person in general, but yeah, when I can manage it, you know, I like to bicycle commute or walk commute because you know there's definitely a big issue with greenhouse gases in this day and age and it also just has you know any number of untold benefits for 
my mental and physical health. You know, they say walking is one of the best forms of exercise for it's what the human body evolved to do the best. So I spent a lot of time doing that. No, that's a great one. And something that I think if you live in an area where that's available to you, um, we should we could all benefit from because in the U.S. we're very car centric and um, I'm living in Ireland now and I walk everywhere and I notice a big difference in my physical and mental health when I when mm -hmm. I am able to do that. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part, part of it for me is um, exactly like you said, it's very car centric in the U.S. But I also think about when I'm in other countries, you know, going, you know, walking 15, 20 minutes to go somewhere is pretty normal. And when I think about it, where I am here, I'm in Spokane, Washington, I can walk most places in 15 or 20 minutes. It just rarely crosses my mind to even do mm -hmm. so, <laughs> you know, and so just sorry. Uh Planning that little extra bit ahead for me makes a pretty big difference. It is a strange mind shift, though, I, I noticed because I visited Texas for the holidays. And granted, the weather wasn't really conducive to it. But even if things were within walking distance, it is a whole other thing to think, oh, I've got to leave an extra half hour early because and here I just do it. I, I build it into the day. But yeah, it, it's very strange how we quickly switch to the systems we're used to. Right. Um, yeah, well, my uh, green life hack this month is um, sort of in keeping with the theme of heat and um, it, getting it a different way than fire. And um, so I'm going to hold up my hot water bottle that I have uh, come to sleeping with every single night um, because it is very cold here and I am not a fan of the cold. So I boil some hot water in a kettle, pour it in this thing, and it keeps me warm all night long. And um, it's just a great way throughout the day if I'm cold and I don't want to run the heater or I don't want to, you know, be wearing 50 layers to kind of keep a little warmth close to me and not have to, you know, burn fossil fuels. So that's my green life hack, a hot water bottle. Um, I think you see those much more maybe in the more northern climates. But uh, when I discovered that moving here, it changed my life. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. To tag on to that, another, I think, a, a good um, self-heating option that I encountered not too long ago is you can get battery-powered hand warmers. Oh, okay. And they plug into a USB outlet, just like you know your phone or any other of your devices. And instead of having to have these like little weird chemical hand packets that don't work half the time and then end up, you know, invariably on the ground in a puddle of water, you just have a little reusable battery-powered one that you take with you all day. Oh, well, that's great. Yeah. Excellent stocking stuffer, even though we're a little bit past that season. Yeah, <laughs> for next year. Yeah. Well, Spencer, thanks again for being on. And uh, for folks who might be interested in following you online, are you followable, findable, or is there a way that people can keep up with what you're, the work you're doing or your organization? Yeah. Yep. I don't have a professional page of any sort because I'm not a particularly professional person, <laughs> as I said, with the whole uncouth nature of wild and fire. But I am on Instagram. Um, my Instagram handle is at spillson underscore everything. It's S-P-I-L-S-O-N underscore everything. And that's where you can find me. Okay. Awesome. And you can find me personally on Instagram and Twitter at Het's Gonna Be Me, the show on all social media as well as YouTube and everywhere you find podcasts. And that's Sustainably Geeky. Um, and if you don't already, please subscribe, like, share, et cetera, et cetera, um, so that we can get the word out. And um, 
if you have ideas for suggestions or guests, send them our way. Uh, thanks again, Spencer, for being on. And for everyone listening, have a great rest of your day. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network. 